All right. It is good to be together uh, today and to see all of your faces um, as always. And um, uh, a lot of fun events for us to, to experience today. That was sweet seeing our youth and uh, the picnic afterwards will be wonderful just to connect and celebrate hopefully the beginning of summer together. Um, but right now, Romans chapter 8, and uh, I'm going to read this entire thing for us, not the entire, uh, but our, pa- our passage tonight is beginning in verse 18 down through the end. So if you could open a Bible and have it open in front of you, that would be wonderful. Beginning in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, referring to God, who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh God, we do thank you for your word. It is life. It is sweet. Um, it is what we need. 
we can hear a lot of things in our day, but Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to know your voice, to recognize it, to, to treasure it. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that that would be our experience as we go through these amazing verses that seem difficult to understand and too good to be true. Uh, So, Lord, would you help me now? Just fill me with your spirit that my mouth would speak whatever it is that you intend for us to hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as a kid, um, people get asked all the time, uh, who do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, Kids get asked that all the time. I mean, even just this last week, I attended my daughter's fifth grade promotion at Kelly Creek Elementary School. And so uh, my daughter was Eden. She was up here. She's going into the sixth grade. And and I never had a fifth grade promotion. I didn't know these things existed. I didn't have an eighth grade promotion. I just got the high school thing going on for me. I don't know if that was a Montana thing, but Elizabeth, my wife, has made fun of me a lot uh, this week for that. Uh, Apparently, these are a thing. But I went. I went to the fifth grade promotion. It was really sweet. It was cute. And as each kid is called, Their picture would go up on the screen. It would say what was one of their favorite memories from school. And at the top of the list was, what do you want to be when you grow up? And so you get all the answers, at least not the answers I actually thought. Some kids are saying entrepreneur or teacher or cafe owner or video game designer or things like that. And and so it's it's so impressive uh, to see what these kids want to be when they grow up. This is what we ask kids. If I was getting promoted, if I actually had a cool fifth grade promotion as a kid, I would have said professional athlete or professional baseball player or something like that. That's what I used to say. And my parents and friends, they would say, oh, that's cute. You know, they, they know it's never going to happen. Um, but when I was even younger than that, uh, if you were to ask me what I wanted to be when I would grow up, I would have said a pastor. I wanted to be a pastor when I was really little because my dad was a pastor. And so me and my sisters, I have an older sister and a younger sister, um, we would often um, get dressed up. I would get dressed up in one of my dad's sports coats, which was obviously way too big for me. And uh, my sisters would get dressed up in a dress, and we would gather all of our stuffed animals. And, and we had this old briefcase, and so I would carry this briefcase that was half my size. And we'd line up all the stuffed animals, and I would open up the briefcase, and I would preach as a six-year-old, to these stuffed animals. I can't imagine they were great sermons, but who knows, maybe a Care Bear got saved or something. We'll never know. We'll find out one day, maybe. Um, But but, but I I like to think that those are sweet moments, and especially I'm like, wow, it's interesting to look back as a kid wearing this sports coat that's way too big for me, and now I get to preach to real human beings who I love. I mean, this is a huge upgrade. But, but it's, I think it's fun and cute to see kids say what they want to be, and then they pretend, right? We try to live up to it. We want to be athletes, so we wear the jerseys, and, or, you know, we wear the oversized clothes, or we use the headrest behind our parents and as a steering wheel when they're driving, and we're dreaming of what we're going to be when we grow up. There is this gap between who we currently are and who we're becoming, but we know it's coming. We know the growth will come. We might become pastors, we might use briefcases. We get asked this question as a kid, but as adults, what happens? We stop asking the question. Because in our minds, we are what we are. But what's interesting is God wants you to keep asking that question. He wants you to keep thinking about this question. And the second part of Romans 8, that's the governing message for us as well. If you are a Christian, if you know Christ, you have this great promise that you are becoming 
who you are, then you're not becoming something you're not. You're growing up, and you are becoming who you are. Not that you're becoming something you're not, but who you are. But it's a painful process. And so our passage tells us that along the way, we groan. In verses 18 to 25, we see that we groan. But in our groaning, God has a goal that's really important for us to remember. And he is going to bring that goal to fruition. And then thirdly, we see this glorious promise from God that carries you through all the way to the very end. And it's, it's very glorious. So let's look here at first at our groaning. Our groaning. Verses 18 to 25. Paul introduces the back part of this chapter, and he doesn't bury the lead at all in verse 18. Do you see it? Look down there. What does it say? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is the great thing about the Bible. It doesn't, doesn't dodge the hard realities of life. It doesn't say, no, there's not really suffering, or you can maybe get out of it if you just believe these things. No, there is suffering, but there is also glory. Right? These things, suffering and glory, are married together, Paul is saying, and they're never divorced. Like a welder, these things are bonded together and they cannot be separated. You can't have one without the other. Verse 17 told us last week that suffering is actually the path we walk to glory. But notice here, Paul says that although they belong together, they cannot be compared at all. What's the response of the world in light of not only experiencing its suffering, but longing for this glory that's so intertwined. What does it say? It says creation itself is groaning in verses 18 to 22. Just notice there in verse 19 how it says the creation waits. This word waits and groaning keep popping up together. They are nearly synonymous, like when you have to wait in traffic, you know, or when you have to wait in that long, maybe like line to ride the ride or something like that. What do you do? You groan right? Because you're waiting to get to the destination. You haven't gotten there yet. And so look at verse 19. Look at how even though creation waits and groans, how does it wait and groan? What does it say? It, it waits with eager longing. Do you see that? In other words, expectation. This literally means to wait with your head raised and your eye fixated on the point of the horizon from which the expected outcome is going to come. That's the image of expected waiting. It's to lift your head and look, right? This image is actually depicting someone who's standing on their tiptoes and stretching out their neck, right, to, to see. Well, what is creation standing on its tiptoes and stretching out its neck, fixated on? What does it say? The revelation of God's children, who are his people, right? Creation is groaning and waiting for this Twofold revelation to see who are God's people and for those people to actually be clothed with the glory that's promised to them. Why? Why are they so stretching out their necks, fixated on this reality? What does verse 21 tell you? Because when this happens, that'll be the signal that all of creation is about to be renewed. Do you see that in verse 21? The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation is experiencing this sort of past groaning 
It was subjected to frustration. When sin entered the world, God put a curse on the world saying, nah, this is not going to be reality forever. We were all subjected to this futility. But there's also a future reality here in verse 21. We just looked at it. They're going to be liberated. All of creation will be liberated. But then so, because of that, this present reality, we groan in the in-between time. It's painful. This word groaning, it literally means the groanings of a wounded man. I don't know if you've ever been wounded before. Um, Maybe even just the wind knocked out of you or something like that. You know, you don't like start just verbalizing, oh man, there's a sharp pain in my elbow. And you don't just start like start talking about it. You just, you groan. You can't even articulate it. You're just in pain. You're trying to catch your breath. That's the idea. You can't express words, just groans. And the image it actually uses is in verse 22. What is it? The image of childbirth. That's actually a really great image, really helpful image. Because what? Childbirth is painful, isn't it? I mean, I know today's Father's Day. Father's Day is not nearly as cool as Mother's Day because... I have four kids, praise God, but Elizabeth did the work, right? She really, I was there. I witnessed how painful childbirth is, but I'm not taking any credit for it because all I did was saying, you're doing great, you know, and then she'd say, shut up, right? Stop talking to me, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm like, all right, I'll shut up, right? Need water, whatever. And, and so it's, it's painful though, I've seen it, but when a woman is in the pains of childbirth, you're not thinking, oh no, we're, she's dying. You're going, no, no, no. Glory is coming. Glory is coming. This new birth is going to be brought into this world. That's exactly what creation is doing all the time. But then we see the groaning of the children, verses 23 to 25. Look there in verse 23. It's showing you that we wait on our tiptoes as well. We are caught in this in-between tension. We have the Spirit of God, it says, which produces this joy in our lives, And this coming glory is giving us hope, but then in the middle we have this pain, this groaning. Look at what Paul highlights that's true for you. What does it say? We have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is agricultural farmer language. When When a farmer would have the first fruits of the crop, it signaled that a harvest season was coming and there was this promise that a full harvest was going to come. This was just the beginning. So when you have the Spirit of God come and live inside of you and you begin to change, and you're like, I used to not do that. I used to not think that. It's just saying, oh, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. But as you're experiencing the beginnings of this new birth, we groan inwardly. Do you see that in verse 23? We groan inwardly as we wait. And then verse, we, we, you know, we have this pain, this, this physical pain, this emotional pain. That's the the groaning inwardly that we experience. But then thirdly, we wait eagerly for our adoption as well. What does it say? The redemption of our bodies. So creation groans for anybody who's a child of God to be revealed. And Christians groan to have our adoption realized. And there's more. Verse 24, in this hope, we were saved. Even if you hate grammar, you have to like this because this is in the aorist tense. It's saying that in the decisive past, you've been liberated from your guilt. You've been liberated from your shame because of your sins. You were saved. But your salvation has birthed a hope in you of the day when you will be fully liberated and you will never sin again. So what do we do now? Will we wait patiently 
That's what it says in verse 25, doesn't it? I love how John Stott says this. He says, we are to wait neither so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation. We are to wait eagerly and patiently together. Uh, It's been raining a lot, hasn't it? Right? We all in agreement on that? It's been raining far too much. And so what do we do? We groan. Right? You wake up and you groan. You're thinking, man, I think summer is supposed to be here by now. It feels like we've been in the winter for forever. I wish summer would come. And, and if you're like me, you all, I'll almost get to the point where you're like, what was summer even like? You know, like I've even had those thoughts. Of, I'm like, what was that like when I used to sit out here and, you know, that kind of thing. You know, it's been raining a lot and so we groan. And so we endure this sort of groan of the rain right now. But the rain just makes the summers all that brighter, don't they? I mean, when the summer comes, we've paid for it. So that now we get to cash in on all the bright green and beauty of living in the Pacific Northwest. Right? The dark transitions and it serves to adorn the summer's beauty, doesn't it? See, suffering makes the joys all that much more joyful. So we grow now, but we wait eagerly, expecting summer. Like, we know it's coming. They say maybe this week. We'll find out, okay? It's the same idea. So so let me ask you, where are you at, if you're being really honest? Where are you at this evening? When you groan in life, which we all do, do you interpret your groaning as a groan that you're thinking in your mind, maybe the gospel of Jesus isn't actually true? So as I groan, maybe I need to go somewhere else. I need to satisfy my groaning somewhere else. Or when you groan, do you kind of get up on your toes? Do you sort of stretch out your neck? Do you begin to watch and wait? When we sing that great song, Is He Worthy? And we sing, do you feel the world is broken? And we all go, we do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We're groaning, right? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? If you get up on your tiptoes, you go, we do. See, our groaning is a reminder that we are waiting. We are waiting. We don't change course because there isn't another course. We don't despair because glory is coming and it doesn't compare to whatever suffering we endure now but we groan. But good news, God has a goal in our groaning. Look at verse 26 through 30. Verse 26, what does it say? Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I mean, this verse could not be more against every ad, movie, book, voice in our modern day. That, says, that speaks to us. Because this is coming out and saying what? You are weak. You don't know things. Right? I mean, who really wants to be weak? Right? Who really wants to not know things in this world? No, our world tells us every day, be strong. Right? You got to be strong. Be strong. Know things. You don't know things? You didn't know that? Right? This is like how we function in our world. But what does it say? We do not know what to pray for as we ought. 
Right? When it says we don't know what to pray for, that's, that's ruling out a lot of things, if you think about it, because we know a lot of things that we're supposed to pray for. We, we know we're to pray for God's um, name to be made famous and, and realized for how holy and glorious He is, right? We are to pray for His kingdom to come and His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have a lot of directives, commands from God for how we are to live our lives. We have a revealed will of God in that way. We have revealed understanding of who we are. We know things that we can pray for. So what is this talking about? What do we not know what to pray for in our weakness? Well, the partial answer I think is given to us in verse 27, because what does the Spirit do? It says the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So there's something here that we don't know, and, and that is the will of God for those gray areas of your life. When you get in those hard moments, the groaning moments, the sicknesses, right, the hardships, the decisions. We don't know whether we should pray for healing or for strength to endure. Right? Of course, both are right. It's not wrong to pray for either, but we long to pray with great faith, and we groan that we are not sure what God's way will be with this sickness or this loss or this sort of persecution or decision that we have to make. We, we just don't know. This would all point to the fact that, what, we are weak. We are in a state of weakness. So what happens if you don't know? What happens if you're feeling weak? What do you do? What does it say? We get help. Right? This verse is connected to the previous verses and that signaled to us when it, with this word likewise. Paul says likewise. You don't just have promises to help you. You have God in you to help you. You have help, right? You are not alone. So we have weaknesses. We need help and the Spirit helps us. How? By He Himself interceding for us with what? Groaning. Too deep for words. So creation groans, we groan, God groans. Why would the Holy Spirit groan if He knows everything? This is telling you that He groans with you. This is expressing that you are not alone. God is not just some distant God looking at you saying, oh, come on. Again, right, trust me. How do you not know these things? He's not standing at a distance saying, that's tough to be you, right? No, he's there in the moment with you, groaning with you and stirring up groans within you. So this is the contrast you're meant to see. You don't know. He knows, right? The point of the passage is comfort. I don't know. I am weak. Oh, good, I'm not alone, right? The one who is never weak is working on my behalf, what a comfort, right? Because we know God does not reject God's prayers. Right? We know that. And so look at what his prayers accomplish. It's, it's your ultimate good. It's your ultimate good. What does it say? That he is going to accomplish good in you. Look at verse 28. You probably have it on your wall somewhere. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So here we see something that we do know in our groaning. You know this, right? All things work together for our good. 
So all things, not some things, not most things, the word literally means all things. Right? Believe it. Right? Do, do you believe that every single one of your circumstances, do you view your life and every single one of your circumstances through those glasses? Like, I know you've heard this a lot, right? But think about it. Like, all things. Do you put that on and go, yep, all things? Right? Not most things, except this thing, all things. See, see good is a weird word. You know, we use it a lot. We say, this is good, that is good, this is not good, that is not good. And what we mean by that is, this is pleasing to me. I prefer this thing. My taste buds like it, you know. Um, So when you think about it, what is good to us depends on our perspective or our taste buds. So, like, my wife will cook Brussels sprouts and say, this is good, and I will say, this is not good, right? Who's right? Right? I mean, that's how we view what's good. I'm a, I've been a Golden State Warriors fan since I was a little boy. They won a championship this week. I was like, that is good. I know a lot of the world says that is not good. Right? Or, or Olive Garden, right? You guys made fun of me for Olive Garden. I can eat Olive Garden and say that's good, and you guys go, I don't know if that's good. Or the movie Top Gun or YouTube, whatever it is, right? We have all these things that the world says this is good, that is not good. We, we have an issue with this word. And because of that, we have an issue with this verse. We've got to be clear, this is not saying that bad equals good. No, bad equals bad, okay? This is saying God works the bad for your ultimate good. That's what it's saying. I propose to you that this verse is entirely true. It's entirely true. And it is true because what is truly good in life is defined by God and not you. And that's where we often get life wrong. Because God is the creator and definer of life. He, he made this whole thing. And somewhere along the way, we have decided that no longer does God define what is good and what is not good, but instead, the definer of that is me. I mean, I, our kids will often ask us for things that will just go, no, you know? I mean, they'll be like, hey, can we stay up as long as we want and watch a PG-13 movie? They're under the age of 13, right? Or eat you know, junk food and stuff, and we'll go, no, right? But in that moment when I'm saying no, that would not be good, right? They have a different definition of good, and so they go and ask the other parent, right? They, they move down the line, as it were, to the next parent, right? That This is what they're doing. They're defining good differently than, than we are. Even if you've been a child, you know how this works. But I think we do this with God as well, We go to God and we say, God, would you do this? And something else comes our way. And so we can take that rejection, that no, that groaning, and we just move down the line. I'm going to go somewhere else. I think that common maxim, you've heard this maxim, it applies really well here. It's, It's the maxim that says the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Right, The very same sun that would melt wax hardens clay. In other words, what makes life good is not our circumstances, but how our heart interacts with those things. So maybe a better way of putting this is not, what do I want out of life? Maybe we need to stop asking that question, but ask the question, what does God want out of life? See, good is not vague. Good is defined for us in this passage. We are told, if you love God, 
You read these verses and you have this gorgeous progression here. Look at, look at verse 28. It, it, verse 28 is not saying our problems work together for good in some abstract way that you and I can't understand as this verse gets ripped out of context. But look at verse 29. It says four. Right? It's showing you something. It's showing you something very concrete. What does it say? What is God's goal? It's to conform us into the image of his son. What is good in the eyes of God? So that you and I would look more and more like Jesus. Right? This is it. This shows us that the good God always is working for us in our life is transformation. Right? If you would just let the sun melt your heart like wax. Right? That's God's goal. What does it say in verse 29? Jesus is the firstborn. This is meaning that God is making a family. Jesus is our perfect older brother. And over time, you and I will all get the family resemblance. That's the goal. God works our bad things for good. But then in verse 29, we see, uh, as Jonathan Edwards puts it this way, our good will never be lost. Right? This passage here is to comfort us to feel our security. Look at verse 29. What is it saying? He foreknew you. This is a verb. This is not a passive receiving of information. It's saying that God didn't passively receive information that you would like him. No, it's a word that means God knew you would wander away from him and he went after you anyways and he captured your heart. That's what this is saying. What does it also say? He predestined you. Destined is destiny. Pre is before. This is meant to comfort you. Before you were born, before you were made, God in his ultimate power and faithfulness said, hey you, right, everything in your life is going to be held in my strong hands. And I'm going to mold you and shape you in the image of my son. This isn't simply talking about how somebody is saved. This is talking about why we are saved. And then the security of that. But look in verse 30. This progression is amazing, isn't it? The best is yet to come. It's laying out for you the process that actually makes you more like Jesus. And it has everything to do with Jesus. What does it say in verse 30? He called you. Where? Not to a place. You haven't been called to Gresham. I have not been called to Redlands. We have been called to a person. That's the only place we've been called. It's to a person. We've been called into a relationship with Jesus. He's justified you. How? By nothing you've done, but by what everything Jesus has done. He's justified you because of Jesus. And then what does it say? He glorified you. When? Someday? Well, kind of. But it's so sure that you could just cash in the check now. Right? This is past tense. It's saying that the beauty and the perfection and the glory and the character of Jesus, all that encompasses that, they, they will be realized in your life one day. So listen to this. This is saying you've been foreknown and predestined to be shaped into the image of Jesus by first being called into a relationship with Jesus because you've been justified because of Jesus, in order that you will ultimately be glorified with Jesus. That's what that's saying. Are you groaning? If you're groaning, uh, take heart in this, that the worst, most baddest, it's not a word, I understand, thing that ever happened 
willingly happen to the most innocent person ever. Jesus has suffered for you, and he suffered so that your suffering will have meaning. So that your suffering could make you more like him. So this is the progression. God works bad things for your good, as Jonathan Edwards would say. The good will never be lost, and the best is yet to come. Right? So as we groan, this is what we say. This is what we need to learn how to say as we put the glasses of Romans 8 on our eyes. God, you have a goal that you are accomplishing. So thank you for this. Help me, help it make me more like Jesus. This is how we pray in light of Romans 8. The thing you've been hoping for your whole life, it actually comes. Thank you for this. Help it make me more like Jesus. Right? This thing that you never wanted to have happen, happens. Thank you for this. Help it make me more like Jesus. See, we, we don't know how God will use our bad, but God will use it towards his good ends. So is our goal and God's goal for our lives the same? Well, we not only have our groaning and this, glor- this goal from God, we have this glorious promise, don't we? Look at verse 31. What does it say? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So here we have four rhetorical questions, and they're all who questions. It's who can be against us if God is for us? It's who should bring any charge against you. It's who can actually condemn you now. It's who can separate you from the love of Christ. What are the answers? No one, right? They're rhetorical, right? Verse 31 is answered in verse 32, right? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give give us graciously all things? Just like any good dad, right? If he gave you his very best, this is an argument from the greater to lesser. If he did that, then wouldn't he just do this? I mean, verse 33, the answer is in verse 33. God justifies. The charges are dropped. He's paid for it. Right? So, so no one can bring a charge against you. Right? Verse 34 is answered in verse 34. Jesus' sacrifice was accepted. Right? You are not condemned. You are free. But then here... Who shall separate us from the love of God? This is where Paul goes off. He just spends all of his time here, doesn't he? Why this question? Why this question? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, I think, is helpful because he once said, since the garden, the voice that the serpent speaks to every heart is, does the Father really love you? Does the Father really love you? Going back to that great song, Is He Worthy?, Don't we sing that? Does the Father truly love us? He does. The problem we have is we've been handed 
counterfeit love that the world uses as currency our entire life. And we bring that counterfeit love into every single one of our relationships, even the most significant ones. We bring it into our marriage. We bring it into our friendships. We bring it into our family relationships. We even bring it into our relationship with God. It's the counterfeit love. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it need love versus gift love. It's, it's need love. It's, it's the love that says, I will love you as long as you do these things. It's, it's caveat love. It's, I love you, but if you do this, or I'll love you if you keep doing this, or as long as you provide this, and then I withhold my love the moment that things are not going the way that I want them to. See, Paul knows this, and that's why he asks the question in verse 35, what can separate you? Look at all the things he lists. He lists seven of them. Could persecution, right? Man, I thought if I followed God and if I was faithful to him, like maybe this would be a good life. Suffering, oh man, I thought there was more to this than that. Could distress, those feelings of depression and despair, when you're like, where is God in my life? Can that, does God withhold his love from me? Is that separated me now? Famine, I thought he was gonna provide all of my needs for me. Nakedness, I'm exposed. Danger, I was hoping this would be a little more safe. I thought following Jesus was the suburb living, you know, that kind of thing. Sword, death itself. See, Paul quotes the Psalms here and the sons of Korah who feel abandoned by God. And it's interesting that every single one of these things that Paul lists, he's actually experienced. So he's probably not just making stuff up going like, you might feel separated from God's love if you go through that. No, he's experienced the first six of these things, and we know by the end of his life he's going to experience the seventh one. Maybe you could list other things too, things that you've done or experienced in your life to where you've reached the point where you go, does God not love me anymore? Maybe it's just through your own Um, some bigger categorical sins that always weigh you down and you finally got some freedom to where you would say you have a little bit more assurance like I think God loves me I'm doing pretty well with my life but then you slip back into those things and when you slip back into those things you almost imagine God is now like I don't know if he loves me anymore so I'm doing that thing again or maybe it's just your groaning and and the suffering you're going through in your life see we've bought into the counterfeit because it's all we know. It's all we know. And so how we think about our relationship with God. See, you, what you surround yourself with is what you know, and it's what shapes you, and you bring it in everything. I mean, it, I could embarrass myself right now. I could sing for you the entire introductory song of Sophia the First, right? That Disney Junior uh, little TV show, right? Um, I, I went and did karaoke with Anthony Perez on Friday night. Eric was there. He did it too. Uh, it was fun, right, Eric? Was it fun, right? Um, I, the teleprompter went up, and that was the only time it didn't work, right? So I got caught in the middle of a song. I'd never done karaoke before. I got caught in the middle of a song, and I was like, I don't know the words, right? I, I should have done Sophia the First. I would have known every single word to that song, even if the teleprompter broke, right? How do I know the intro to Sophia the First? I don't sit down with Elizabeth and I and go, hey, what do you want to watch, Sophia? Right? She's like, yeah, let's turn it on right? Let's see what happens next. We don't do that. How do I know? Because I've lived my life with little girls and boys. 
right, who loved Sophia the first. I see what you surround yourself with, it just permeates within you, you start using, you start thinking it that way. And so we've done this with counterfeit love, but verse 38, what does he say? Nothing in human experience, not death or life, nothing in the spiritual realm, not an angel or a demon, nothing in time, nothing present, which is just so broad, right? Just nothing present, right? Future, nothing that opposes God's people, no powers, no governments, no nothing, right? No space, you afraid of aliens or something, right? Nothing in height or depth, right? Nothing in all of creation. So the answer is nothing, just dream it up, right? Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Why? Because God loves us. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Like not even you can separate you from God's love for you. If it's hard to believe, it's because it is, right? I mean, some of you so desperately need to hear this. You are not too bad for God to love you. You don't have to change before God will start loving you. God just loves you where you're at right now in this moment. And when you begin to realize that, you will begin to change. Paul's essentially asking us, so I'll ask you, when do you feel most loved by God? When is the moment that you feel most loved by God? And then when is that moment that you feel the least loved by God, the least likely to believe that you were loved by God? Think of those. He's saying there's no difference. There's no difference. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is the last question because all the other questions were really just other versions of this one. The only thing that we would really have to fear, the only thing that could really bring us harm is to be separated from his love. And so in a world of counterfeit love, how can you comprehend the fact that there is someone, the most important being who is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, who loves you and says, I will never stop. I mean, this is the air we breathe, the life we live. It shapes our groaning and our goals, at least it should. I mean, I like to think of it as, you know, an astronaut in a space station or something like that. Um, I don't know if I would be terrified or excited to be in space. Probably a little bit of both. But if you're an astronaut, you know that you need to be tethered always to that space station. Right, could you imagine if an, if an astronaut got tired of living at the space station, they're groaning, right? And they just go, you know, I'm going to go find life elsewhere, right? Doesn't work, right? The groaning turns into not breathing, okay? You're going to die, right? You need to be tethered to that space station forever, right? As long as that's happening, you will live, you will thrive, you will survive, right? This is what this looks like. Look in verse 39, what does it say? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's space station type stuff. That's just hearkening back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Space station stuff. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus, like space station stuff. You live in the spiritual space station of God's love. You live in the atmosphere of God's love. This is the glorious promise. And the fact that it's a promise means that the best is yet to come. I think of maybe no better fitting way to conclude Romans chapter 8 than the way that C.S. Lewis concludes his Narnia books in The Last Battle. Maybe you know this well, but what does he say? As Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to those children like a lion as they're looking at him. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. There'll be no more groaning. Do you see? Do you see? Even if you groan today, our future is incredibly bright. It's always incredibly bright. Right? You are becoming who you are. Right? The clothes might not fit very well today. You might feel a little weird and silly and I'm like, oh man, I got a lot of growing up to do. Right? But you are becoming who you are. And so as they hang off our arms, right, we groan. But as we groan, we know God's goal is to make us more like Jesus. So the groaning is the conforming. So we welcome it. And man, do we have a promise to carry us through the very end. We live in the atmosphere of God's love. This may be my final sermon as your pastor. And I hope that you've benefited in some small way for me having that high privilege and honor. But my goal all along for you and my aim has been that you would be comforted in knowing God's great love for you. That's been my goal and what a comfort to know. That's actually God's promise. I'm not making it up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are for us and not against us. You are our assurance. Lord Jesus, you are with us and you've promised us that you will never leave us. You are our peace. Lord Jesus, you are in us. You are our hope of glory. Lord Jesus, you say that we are in you. You are our righteousness.
Lord Jesus, you are above us. You are our sanity. You are under us. You are our freedom. And you are towards us. You are our future. We worship you tonight. Lord, help us to to find these words ringing true just in the, the bell of our heart, Lord. Will we be people who stand up on those tiptoes and stretch out our necks and fix our eyes on you as we groan? We thank you for what you've done for us, and we want to remember you now in celebration as we take communion. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.